0: We are delighted to be joined by pastor and author Gavin Altland. His Twitter bio says, pursuer of kindness and joy. Gavin, that must be hard to find on Twitter.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It sure is. Yeah, Twitter is a place where you don't see that too often. So (laughs) hopefully we can make that better.
0: Yeah. Before you tell us about your latest book, Finding the Right Hills to Die On, Gavin, just tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you become a Christian?
1: sure yeah i'm a pastor and i live in ojai california which is about 80 miles northwest of los angeles Uh, i'm married and have four children as of eight days ago we just had a a little baby girl and um, i became a christian at a young age i grew up in a christian family i think it was actually when i was about 10 years old i heard the gospel presented very simple gospel presentation um i knew it deep in my heart that i was not in a right place with god and i i just responded to that and and knelt and surrendered my life to christ and it's yeah. been a pretty awesome journey ever since
0: yeah awesome so you're you're a prolific writer um i know this isn't your first book but this book that you're going to be speaking about today is finding the right hill to die on tell us a little bit about that book and how did you come to write it gavin
1: yeah, okay. This is a, a shorter book. It's more popular level. Um, it's. I really hope it would be helpful to pastors, elders, uh, ministry teams, uh, seminary students, kind of a broader audience. And it just comes out of my concern that right now it seems like so much of the world is polarizing. Mm. And being able to have disagreement in a respectful way seems to be getting more, more challenging and, and more rare. And whether it be in politics or even other spheres of life, and I certainly feel this in the United States, but I, I, I suspect it's not only here. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes it seems as though, you know, in the church, we're doing the exact same thing. We're polarizing. We're, we're not talking to those Christians that we disagree with in a respectful, courteous way, in a way that's edifying. And even where there's vigorous disagreement, there's love, that is evident amidst the disagreement. And of course that's not always the case. There's some Christians who do an excellent job at that. But I think we need to do better overall, and this book really comes out of the concern for that. The hope is that it will help us try to find what are the right hills to die on, what are the issues that are so important and so central that we have to emphasize them and really fight for them. And even there, though, even with those issues, doing so in a loving and respectful way. But then also there's so many issues that are not hills to die on that sometimes we can divide over. So hopefully the book will just help us think about that.
0: Yeah. In the book, you write about this term theological triage. What does that mean?
1: Okay, uh, this is a term. It's sort of a metaphor borrowed from a medical context Mm. where, for example, on a battlefield, a medic will go out and do triage, which simply means prioritizing the the more important injuries first Mm. so that people don't die. Mm. Um, Some of the injuries can wait a little bit, and you can't treat everyone at once, so you're trying to prioritize the most urgent needs. And uh, that's the idea of this book, but doing that with theology, so saying what are the most important things we need to focus on right now, and then trying to have a, a ranking for them. And in the book, I suggest uh, four different sort of categories, not because this is the only way to think about it. Certainly, mm-hmm. we could have more categories probably hmm. but uh, this is one way to think about it so so first rank issues would be doctrines that are really essential to orthodoxy they really are the parameters around orthodoxy uh, second rank doctrines would be doctrines that they, they don't make you a christian if you believe them but they might affect what kind of church you go to or hmm. what denomination you're in uh, third rank doctrines would be doctrines that they matter they're not totally irrelevant, but we don't need to divide over them. We could even be on staff in the same church, yeah. uh, even if we differ. And then fourth-rank issues would be things that just don't matter at all, and we just don't need to, to worry about. And so that's one way of trying to kind of prioritize uh, different rankings of doctrines so that we don't just put everything in a very general category of either it's a gospel issue or it's totally irrelevant.
0: Yeah, I was about to say that because that that's previously how we've always um kind of defined it is it a gospel issue or not. Um what what's your thoughts on that? Why, what what could possibly be wrong with that statement in terms of it being just two categories in terms of is it a gospel issue or is it a secondary issue Gavin? <laughs>
1: I have thought about this a great deal because I do appreciate, you know, making that distinction. Mm. Of course, there's some people who don't even make that distinction, uh, either in practice or in principle, and everything is a gospel issue. So Mm. it is good to make that basic distinction. But sometimes when people say that, I've had the concern that um, everything that's not a gospel issue— kind of gets swept to the side as irrelevant or as not worth talking about. Mm. And I've heard people say that in such a way as to kind of minimize uh, the importance of non-gospel issues. And the problem is, you know, life is very complicated, theology is very complicated, there's lots of issues that are not a, a gospel issue in the sense that they're necessary to believe in order to affirm the gospel but they still matter. They make a difference and we should still care about them. And so hopefully the the fourfold ranking is at least a start to thinking with a little bit more categories and a little bit more nuance.
0: Yeah, it's really good. I mean, as you're speaking there, we're we're making the assumption that everybody has the same understanding of what the gospel is because um, we've got a Facebook page. Um, We recently put a post up saying, um, what is the gospel? And the amount of different responses that we got. I guess where we live in this postmodern world as well, um Gavin, where you know we can often find well I say we people often end up cheering people on and you know whatever whatever it means to you, buddy, well done kind of thing. How how do we make sure that we don't get sucked into that culture as a church, Gavin?
1: Mm. Well, I do think it's important to um kind of insist upon the objectivity of truth. And one of the things I've heard Tim Keller say many times that I found very insightful, because there is this mentality today that, um, what's you know, one thing can be true for you, another yeah. thing can be true for me, yeah. and sometimes there's even a resistance to any kind of definitions or standards. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, as a pastor, there's times where I meet people who are opposed to a church or an organization having a statement of faith um, because it, it feels judgmental or divisive to them um, even for the organization to define its beliefs but i've heard tim keller say many times that the idea that doctrine doesn't matter is itself a doctrine and i think that's very insightful and in the book i talk a lot about uh, doctrinal culture and doctrinal ethos and doctrinal attitude because sometimes those who want to push against doctrines or make all doctrines subjective Hmm. are inconsistent in realizing that they themselves have doctrinal positions Hmm. they they may be you know less thought out or less sharply defined but that doesn't mean they're they don't have positions and an overall sort of doctrinal ethos in the way they function and so that's one way i've found helpful to kind of highlight you know, No one can avoid doing triage, yeah. I don't think. We may yeah. not call it that term, and that's fine. But no one can avoid thinking about the prioritization of different doctrines. Yeah. Um, it's kind of an unavoidable task. Yeah. So I don't know if that answers your question exactly, but that's one of the things that has been helpful for me to reflect upon.
0: Yeah ecumenical is a word that is guaranteed to draw a response and sometimes quite a negative response. Tell us about the pros and cons of churches taking an ecumenical stance.
1: Well some some people really don't like that word because they associate it with a kind of what I call uh, theological minimalism which is really going down to the lowest common denominator and kind of downplaying everything else, sometimes downplaying everything altogether. Um, And so sometimes people have that association but I have to say that I don't think that that is necessarily a problem with pursuing um, and, and caring about being ecumenical in general. I mean, it, you know, it can certainly be done in a, in a minimalistic kind of way, but uh, the New Testament has a lot to say about our unity mm-hmm. as the people of Christ, and that's at the heart of what it means to pursue um ecumenism and so i would say that you know for people who really like to fight over doctrine they really care about doctrine which in and of itself to deeply care about doctrine is a wonderful and good thing but we do need to remember one of the doctrines that's been entrusted to us in the new testament is the doctrine of our unity in christ and the doctrine that we are to practice forbearance and patience for other christians Uh, for example in first corinthians 8, and in Romans 14, and, and elsewhere. So um, that, to me, is really important, and it's, it's very important that we show love to other Christians, even amidst disagreement. And in the book I talk about how this may not mean formal church membership together, but uh, there's a great quote by Charles Spurgeon where he says, we need to have a warm corner in our hearts for every true Christian. Uh, If they are precious to Jesus, if they are among the people of Jesus— He shed his blood for them. We should care about them. We should have a warm corner in our heart. We should look for ways that we can partner. We should desire unity and pray for unity. We should uh, look for any ways that we can link arms for ministry and even just the attitude of our hearts, having a kindness toward them as much as we can. Mm -hmm. I think that's very important because, you know, earlier we mentioned Twitter and how there's lots of meanness Mm -hmm. on Twitter. Well, Christians can do that, too. And Jesus pray, when Jesus prayed for our unity in John 17, the purpose of that was so that the world will know that the Father sent him. And I think that's true today, that when we fail to practice unity and fail to value unity, um, complicated a task as it is, when we're not even thinking about it, it's not even a value to us, That does that is noticed yeah. by others and by those outside the church. And that's something I think we should really— bear bear in mind
0: yeah with a heart for unity how do we avoid welcoming wolves in the monster flock
1: mm. well one of the things that i think can be helpful is remembering that uh, valuing unity and valuing love does not mean the absence of disagreement mm. i think sometimes you know in the book I, I talk a lot about the importance of theological humility and pursuing that in a kind of philippians 2 kind of way mm. And uh, where, where Paul speaks of um, treating others as more important than ourselves and so forth, a pattern on what Jesus has done for us in coming to die for us on the cross. Yes. And I just think that um, it's very important, but I, sometimes I get pushback on humility because people say, but if we're too humble— then, you know, we'll get wishy-washy or we won't oppose error or, for instance, wolves will not be rebuked as they should. Yeah. But I, I think sometimes that reflects a misunderstanding of what humility is because I don't think humility is at odds with strength yeah. um, or or strong conviction, just as I don't think unity is necessarily at odds with open, transparent discussion and disagreement and statement of uh, areas of, of difference. So when there are wolves, uh, the leaders of the church have a responsibility to clearly um, uh, identify uh, whatever the doctrines are that are maybe in in play, Mm. and then to uh, protect the flock, Mm. and and that you will need pastoral wisdom for how precisely it should be done. But um, I don't think that's at odds with unity. it will complicate maybe how what unity looks like and it will require us to cultivate different kinds of virtues. We'll have to have courage and gentleness at the same time. Mm. And in the book, I talk a lot about that. These two different kinds of uh, virtues that are needed for being good theologians, both courage and humility, uh, both tenderness and toughness. Um, But I think we can do both. And I see Jesus doing both. He's very tough on the Pharisees. He's very tough to rebuke. Uh, when he is indignant at people for their hypocrisy. But he's so compassionate. and He's so kind. And Mm -hmm. so he's a good model to us.
0: Yeah. As a pastor with a public profile, Gavin, how aware are you of who and where you partner? Because I I think of someone like Francis Chan, who over the last year has been very vocal on having an ecumenical outlook, which has led to a lot of criticism of him partnering with well-known prosperity ministries. How, How aware are you of that situation?
1: I haven't followed all of the details of Francis Chan's uh, ministry in recent times I, a little mm-hmm. bit. I I do recall watching and interacting with and reflecting upon his comments about the Eucharist and church history and mm-hmm. church unity and those kinds of topics. I think I saw that on Twitter
0: yeah.
1: uh, January-ish of this year, maybe, yeah. 2020. Yeah um and i found that very interesting i I appreciate him personally i don't know him personally but i appreciate who he is and what uh, kind of how he approaches things but uh, i did have some concerns about what he was saying in that video clip and i wrote a little bit about that on twitter um on this topic in general it takes a lot of wisdom i mean there you know i don't think there's any sort of silver bullet answer that i know of that can encompass every possible situation but I think the driving question is, is for me is, what will uh, best serve the kingdom of God? Mm. And there are times where we need to say, you know what, Um, the the gospel will go forward if I am able to stretch out and partner with this person or with this ministry or speak at this conference or whatever, and I just need to put my personal feelings aside about this or that matter. There's other times where we need to say, you know what, this is a great opportunity. Um, it could maybe, you know, expand my platform or something, but it would not serve the interests of Christ for me to engage in that context and for me to partner there. And so those are both, both can be challenging decisions that require us to die to our flesh and, and live to the Lord and, and prioritize his concerns, um, and it, I think it takes a lot of wisdom. I don't think it's a simple matter. I think it takes wisdom and prayer. Mm. And maybe we'll get it wrong sometimes. I certainly feel like I've not you know, made perfect decisions on this. But over time, I think we can also gain wisdom as we look back and learn from how the uh, consequences have fallen out of what we've decided to do.
0: Without that discernment as well, there's there's a risk, isn't there, of giving credibility to false teachers by sharing a stage Um, With somebody who who could be a well-known, you know, heretic, it it, it could almost be drawing, you know, a a sense of credibility towards that ministry.
1: That's right. I think that's a very real concern. And, uh, you know, I've also had this concern recently with when fallen pastors are restored too quickly or too glibly. Mm. That can be so hurtful to the victims who were damaged by their ministry. And also, I don't think it serves the church well. So there's all kinds of worries there and and concerns about how we navigate um, where we don't want to um, put someone on a platform or join someone on a platform in a way that will be dishonoring to truth. At the same time, we want to, there's, as I said, there's different categories of errors. So there's some points of doctrine where we might disagree with someone but say, but we can still partner in the gospel. Mm. We can still join together. And so it takes wisdom to know how to distinguish those two and hopefully that's the kind of thing my book is is uh, useful as we work
0: at that yeah yeah how important is it for Christians to love and embrace all Christians even the ones we disagree with on many issues and also we've mentioned Twitter as well what does that actually look like online Gavin
1: Mm. well uh from what i've said already i am sure people know that i think it's very important that we show love to all christians i actually think that's um it's it goes right to the heart of uh discipleship i think it's involved in the golden rule the second greatest commandment Um, and i think it reflects a high view of the church when we recognize uh all of the those who are in the body of christ we will be with forever in heaven And we have a a deep mystical union with, through our union with Christ, and therefore we have an obligation towards to love, to care for, to wish well upon. Sometimes when I'm struggling in a relationship, I find it helpful to um, ask the Lord to give me a vision or a, a sense of this person's happiness and welfare in heaven. What will be they be like when they're ultimately glorified? Mm. And then wish that upon them, pray that upon them, and wish them well, bless them in my heart, even mm. if they've hurt me. Um, I think that's so important. I do want to acknowledge, and people listening to this may find that a, a, a challenging exhortation or even a painful one, because there are real wounds in the body of Christ, and there's also complications. That, I mean, there are people within the body of Christ who maybe have hurt us, and maybe we have deep concerns with how they are, are functioning in their ministry or in other ways. So it is complicated, and there is a time, I think—you uh, mentioned Twitter— well, there is a time to just avoid interacting with someone. Mm. So I don't think love—I think love has to do with our the ultimate state of our hearts and what we're hoping for, praying for, working toward. I don't think love always means that we're going to be, you know, uh, buddy-buddy, and, and certainly it won't always mean that we're doing ministry together. Uh, in, in Titus 3, Paul speaks of avoiding a divisive person. Yeah. And I do think there must be a time for that. I mean, there are people on Twitter who— only want to argue and stir things up and they are provocateurs you know they want to stir up the controversy Mm. and i think it's often wise to simply avoid getting into a a dialogue especially because twitter is a very limited medium and i think we would be well served by considering where do we need to relocate the conversation from twitter to real life to a phone call and we would boy there could be some real progress if we did that better if we said hey We're not making progress on Twitter. We're just getting angry and everyone is watching. Let's talk by phone. Yeah, I mean, that that seems very rare, but I actually think (laughs) we need to talk to our opponents, our our theological opponents, and and sit down or or, uh, over a dinner table and talk Mm. and hash it out. I think we can make a lot of progress like that.
0: Mm. With that in mind, how useful do you think a discernment ministry is?
1: I suppose it depends upon what is meant by a discernment ministry. Uh, certainly, the call to discernment is something that every Christian should practice. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's in the New Testament that we should be practicing discernment. I see that in 1 John, for example. Yeah. I see it in 1 uh, Corinthians. Yeah. Um, but I have to say that there are some discernment ministries, so-called, that seem to be um, constantly in attack mode. And that concerns me, and I I, I think that um, when we are engaged in discernment, we just need to uh, be aware of temptations that may be open to us. We need to have to strive for humility, and remember that we are fallen and fallible as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we need to seek to show love, and us, one of the ways we can do that is making you know, triple-checking our facts, making sure we are totally accurate. Yeah. There are times where discernment ministries spread things that are false, and I do think that the right word for that sometimes is slander. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they are spreading false information about Christian leaders, and that's very dist- I don't think— People always realise how hurtful and destructive it can be for pastors when their reputation is damaged by um, mistruths. And I see that happening sometimes. So discernment is very important, but it's equally important, I think, that it be done in a biblical and Christ-like
0: way. Mm. It's a very human thing for for us to feel comfortable and for us to to like people like ourselves. And I wonder from... Looking at your book, Gavin, from our conversation, how how much of our concern sometimes with people that have different theological beliefs to ourselves often comes out of a an almost caricature extreme view of, of the other person. So, for an example, I'm a cessationist, whereas and I'm not you know a massive fan of categories or or, or you know saying that because you often oh. then when you give that information, you're not then sure what that means to the other person. So often when you say that you're a cessationist to somebody, I think, oh, well, you don't believe in the Holy Spirit then. <laughs> or, you know, and <laughs> there'll be this caricature. Or, you know, if somebody's a continuous, then you've, you know, and, and again, you go to the extreme. How? What are your thoughts on that, Gavin? And, and what can we do to prevent that from being the case?
1: Mm. I can really relate to your comments there. Uh, as I was writing the book, I felt uh, uncomfortable at times with trying to figure out where do I even reference my own views? Mm. Because as you say, when we identify ourselves on some of these issues, uh, it can uh, create distance Mm. between ourselves and someone who holds a different view. Mm. And I didn't want to do that unnecessarily. But then if you never talk about your views, uh, that can be problematic or um, the book can feel too abstract. Like it's not getting specific enough. So I really struggled with that. And I tried to make it as clear as I could, um, you know, here's where I stand, but I'm not trying to emphasize this, or you know, that that really isn't the point of this book. And I, I think to answer your question, you know, one of the things that is so important to me, and I'm increasingly, in our current context um, where the culture is so polarizing, um, I'm increasingly seeing the importance of believing the best in others giving the benefit of the doubt and mm. i've seen this recently where christians of different tribes on various issues mm. um and i have had the privilege of having the opportunity to talk with people on both sides and mm. i hear the way they talk about each other and i think sometimes it's almost as though we're looking for faults or we're believing the worst so easily yeah and it's so easy to do mm. um when we because Something about the way we're wired is kind of tribal. Mm. You know, we want to be a part of a team. Even when I went to college, I was at the University of Georgia, and it's amazing how intense the loyalty is to the Bulldogs there as opposed to other schools. And it's something sociologically goes on in us that we want to identify with a tribe and with a team. When that happens with our theology, it can lead to dark and ungodly attitudes. And so it's really important to not be more cynical than we need to be. I want to be, I'd rather err on the side of naivety than cynicism. And I want to be the kind of person who believes the best of others. Mm. And I think we need to do better at that as the church of Jesus Christ here in the early 21st century.
0: Mm. If you ended up in a conversation with someone and they told you that they really loved the teaching of a well-known heretic, how would you navigate that conversation?
1: Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I have had some conversations like that, uh, and that's challenging. <laughs> yeah. um, on the one hand, you know, you don't want to immediately just flatten the person, so mm-hmm. you want to have a pastoral touch. And uh, it, some of the details of how y- you might approach this might depend on your relationship with this person and how well you know them. Um, I do think it's helpful to give the person specifics, and and at a certain point in the conversation. Um, it will probably be helpful to say, hey, did you know that someone says this? And then document the claim and and show them the claim so that you're not just uh, giving them sort of general hearsay, but you're you're giving them specifics. Mm. And then just patiently, lovingly try to explain why that's a matter of concern. And if it's truly someone who is heretical, not merely in error on a second or third rank issue, because that's a whole other issue here is sometimes we use that word heresy, um, either we don't use it at all, and that would be the minimalistic tendency, yeah. um, or we, we use it too quickly, and we label things a heresy that are maybe an error, but they're not, they don't rise to that level. Mm-hmm. I, I tend to use the word heresy to describe theological erroneous views that threaten the gospel. Yeah. They're yeah. not merely, you know, um, one person believes in uh, one one mode of baptism, the other a, a different mode and, and one is right and one is wrong. Mm-hmm. but they're but they're both Christians. They're really uh, more foundational errors. So uh, if it's really a, a heresy, I think it's probably uh, going to be important early on in the conversation to be clear about that and, and just calmly try to explain. Uh, you know, here's what the issue is, and here's why it's so important to be careful about it. And maybe there's ways to disentangle. It's possible this person might be a regenerate Christian who loves the gospel and loves the truth. Yeah. But what they've understood from this teacher, maybe they don't know the whole picture. Maybe they picked out something out of context. Maybe they liked some of the good things that teacher said and not known the bad things and so yeah. forth. Yeah. So hope maybe there's a way to disentangle. the the good things there from the bad and try to be clear about both
0: yeah very wise gavin very wise Have there been any hills that you would have died on historically but you've since changed your mind on i cannot think of any specific doctrines
1: that i would have said as first rank and now don't see as first rank um part of that is i have been very blessed to have a, a godly Dad and mom, yeah. who I feel like gave me a, a pretty good framework early on of thinking about theology. Now there have been a few issues that I've realized are more complicated. So, for example, in the book, I talk about the the virgin birth of of Jesus as a first rank doctrine, and I just talk about how J. Gresham Machin a hundred years ago uh, saw that as a kind of a fault line between uh, 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 a biblical view of Christ and the a sort of liberal uh, modernist view that that uh, took out all the supernatural elements of Christianity at that time in history. And I talk about how 1st rank doctrines can be like that. They can function as kind of a dividing line or a wedge between uh, the spirit of the age, mm. whatever it is. Back in Machen's day, it was uh, classic liberalism, denying the supernatural. Um, and it's uh, different today. I heard someone once say that uh, 100 years ago, People loved the ethics of Christianity, but uh, hated the miracles. And today, it's the exact opposite. We love the miracles, but we hate the ethics. Yeah, um, yeah. So, you know, things change from time to time. Yeah. So, but I think I think that's a good example of a first rank issue, and the and I think Machen did a wonderfully uh, instructive job at, at kind of engaging that issue and doing what what we would, might call theological triage on it. Um, but I have learned, I mean, there are Christians that I think are Christians that have denied the virgin birth. I mean, Emil Bruner would be an example of that. Yeah. So then you get into the really tough question of, can someone experience salvation yeah. if they are confused or muddled or even deny a 1st rank doctrine? And I have a couple of pages in the book on that and try to walk through the nuances of that question. So I would say there's some issues like that where my appreciation for nuances and The complications of real life Mm. has deepened, Um, but I still see that as ultimately a first rank issue.
0: Yeah. Gavin, I want you to speak to me directly here. Do do some counselling with me, as somebody with <laughs> <laughs> as somebody with really low um, emotional intelligence. I, on a scale of one to ten, I'm either a one or a ten. I'll either it, you know my default position is I'll either ignore something, or on the other side of the spectrum, it, it'll be I'll, I'll end up crying about it and and getting really upset about a, a disagreement. Uh-huh. What what are some healthy ways to have theological disagreements within your own sort of family or within your own church?
1: Mm. Well, for me personally, what is most helpful is first and foremost, and this is going to sound very basic, but I think it's really important, is finding our identity in the gospel and going back to Jesus himself and uh, feasting our hearts upon his love and remembering that um, he is the ultimate point of all doctrines. He and his gospel. It all is about him. Hmm. It's not just about truth for truth's sake. Um, or just being right for our sake. Mm -hmm. And I think that helps me uh, when I'm in a disagreement to kind of frame the situation in a larger picture of, um, uh, you know, this doctrine isn't what makes me right. It isn't what makes me feel okay about myself. It Mm -hmm. isn't what makes me a good Christian. Mm -hmm. Um, It may be very important, but I'm going to find my first level of identity in Jesus. What Mm -hmm. makes me right is that Jesus gave his life for me. He gave his blood for me. He rose again from the dead for me. I'm going to give myself to that at my most interior heart level. Mm -hmm. That's who I am at rock bottom. Mm -hmm. I'm bought by the blood of Christ. Now from there, I build outwards to these secondary and tertiary issues and they matter Mm -hmm. and they're important. But when my emotional security is in Christ like that, I can navigate those other issues with a little bit more calmness Mm -hmm. and freedom. Um, One practical thing that helps with that, because that's kind of abstract and theological, Mm. is just the use of humor. Mm. And I know that that seems so basic and practical, but I've actually found it really helpful in the midst of a discussion that can be uncomfortable or tense. Uh, Just using humor. And another thing that's very practical is just saying something kind to the other person. Whatever it is, uh, just saying, I appreciate having this discussion with you if that's all you can say something kind can be disarming and can introduce a human
0: touch to Mm. things
1: that's another practical idea
0: yeah wow really good what advice do you have for pastors on navigating difficult theological differences among their own church members
1: Mm. well i would first say i feel their pain (laughs) (laughs) this is so hard uh, because you're as a pastor you're in a very particular kind of role Mm -hmm. and you don't have as much freedom. I mean, for example, the way you might talk about politics is going to be – if you're a good pastor who's mindful of what your calling is, I think you will be constrained and very thoughtful and judicious about how you talk about politics because you don't want to complicate what your main purpose is as a pastor, which is not to be a political commentator, uh, but it's to be a – a proclaimer of the good news of Jesus. Mm. And so um, that that doesn't mean you never talk about politics, but the way you do so will be subordinated to the interests of the gospel. Mm. And that's very challenging. And there are lots of cantankerous people out there in the world who will, they will find a way to argue with you, to fault you. There's so much unfair criticism of pastors. So I first would just express my my heart level Uh, sense of solidarity with them in the in the trenches um i would say you know the main question is as always how can i best advance the gospel in my ministry and so i think that will often mean uh, lots of restraint lots of um not emphasizing your own views on various issues but um maybe saying them but not emphasizing them maybe bringing them in in relation to the gospel and you know, and how uh and in what will serve the gospel for your people um and i think I really don't think there's any sort of easy way that pastors can avoid the challenges of this. I face this a lot because I've written about things, and that people can find my writings, and then yeah. they can, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, say, "Hey, you said this," yeah. and then we, then we're into it like that. <laughs> and I don't know any shortcut of how to deal with that beyond just I think patience and love go a long way. One of the things, uh, one thing that might be helpful to say is, I think showing a human side can help. So being transparent with people about your motives as much as you can. I found this helpful mm. when, when there's a disagreement. Sometimes people feel threatened yeah. and they view you not as a person, but as a threat. And so it's just honestly saying to someone, hey, you know, I know we see this differently. Let me share with you my heart. Let yeah. me share with you. Here's honestly why. I feel this way about this issue to the best that I know my motives. Here's what I'm trying to do. Here's how I'm trying to be faithful to the word of God. And just saying that and laying your heart on the table. There are some people that you'll never win over no matter what you do. But some people can be won over like that by showing the human touch in that way. So that's one maybe small piece of advice.
0: Yeah. At what point do you encourage that church member to, to maybe find another church that lines up more with them? Know, theologically, mm.
1: well, I hope that I'm slow to that conclusion. Mm. I hope that I won't be. It won't be from a selfish motive, like um, they're just causing me difficulty or something like that. Mm. Um, sometimes pastors can can fail to show the patience we should show. Um, I think there are times where, when someone is really stuck, and whether it be a doctrinal issue or some other practical issue or something Mm. they just cannot turn the corner and it will be a source of perennial frustration and conflict and unfruitfulness for both them and for the church if they stay there are times where like like and even then i think how you might go about that will need to be handled very delicately you don't want someone to feel as though you're rejecting them personally Or you don't want them, but um, there may be ways, depending on your relationship with that person, to to sort of acknowledge that the divide is uh, not seeming to be able to be bridged at this time, and there may be a way to acknowledge that to the person, but it will need to be done with great care great patience, and hopefully every step along the way a care for that person and a love for that person
0: yeah so good gavin you're a super busy man and you've got lots of other projects on the go tell us about what's going on
1: have, um a, a couple of the books coming out one is an academic book on Anselm that's drawn from my doctoral work and that uh i'm actually not sure the exact date because it's been a little delayed because yeah. of the covid-19 crisis yeah. but any day now i'm hoping to see it in the mail yeah, wow. um the other book that i could uh, speak about that is uh a bit down the pipeline but it might be of more interest to people it's a little it's still an academic book but it's it's not just meant for specialists it's meant for uh, a broader audience it's called Retrieving Augustine's Doctrine of Creation and yeah. it's about what we can learn about creation uh, from St Augustine the great church father and that comes out uh July 14th so those are two two books that might be of interest to people
0: Just expand on that a little bit for us Gavin that second book
1: Okay um well, it's uh, kind of similar to some of the things I've written about, about this whole idea of theological retrieval, mm. which simply means drawing from historical theology, especially more neglected or forgotten historical theology, to help in constructive theology today. Mm. And this book is about, um, you know, Augustine, actually, it's not well known, but he was very interested in creation. Mm. It, you might say that it was. One of his driving interests as a theologian and as a Christian, he had his own hang ups with Genesis chapter one that he struggled with. A little different from the the issues as they play out today, but um, they were related to the Manichaeans, uh, that was kind of a, a sect that uh, was ridiculing Genesis 1 as as unsophisticated and he struggled to know how to respond to those concerns. There is a lot of relevance, I think, in Augustine's thought on creation to the the, uh, current issues, even amidst their differences. Sometimes going back to the past can be a great way to get perspective on the controversies of the present. So this book... uh, Uh, is about, I would say, it's about five things. It's about humility, and the humility Augustine models before Scripture and before what we would call science as well. It's about, um, uh, uh, secondly, uh, how much more there is to creation than simply the controversial issues and what he can remind us of that's central and foundational that all Christians agree upon. Uh, Thirdly, it's about uh, Genesis 1 and how we should interpret that passage fourthly it's about animal death before the fall yeah. and augustine's views on that and lastly it's about adam and eve and augustine's views on that right. so it's a topic of great interest to me yeah. i've agonized my way through studying that and yeah. i hope it could help others who are interested in it
0: well that sounds so cool so that's out in july gavin right
1: yeah that's right july 14th
0: yeah awesome. well maybe maybe we can have you back on the show um in july so we can talk about that book specifically that'd be great
1: Oh, I'd love to. That'd be great.
0: Fantastic. So, Gavin, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you?
1: Well, I I love to connect with people on social media. Uh, Facebook and Twitter tend to be the ones that I use the most. Um, Happy for people to look me up and and, uh, interact by email. I try to respond to every email. So um, even if it's a brief response and my email can be accessed on my website, which is just www.gavinortland.com. Ortland spelled O-R-T-L-U-N-D. And um, that's another place people can connect with me as well. They
0: can subscribe
1: to the to the
0: website. Fantastic. Well, we'll put a link to your Twitter, Facebook and your website in the description below. Gavin, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed speaking to you.
1: Hey, really enjoyed it. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Gavin.